taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. God says in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and, on, and peace on earth to people he favors or goodwill towards men. This is the word of God. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Avalo and I'm joined by Brian Children. As we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, hello everyone. We've been praying for you. Praying that this season starts finding you well and uh, you're able to enjoy some time uh, just even pondering the season. What time of, what time of the year it is and, and what we're to be celebrating. So let's welcome aboard uh, Brian Chilton. Hello, Brian. Hey, Curtis. How you doing, brother? Doing good. Doing good. Yeah, the sun's been out and it's actually been pretty clear for the past couple of days up here at the ranch and it's been really nice uh, in the mid-40s and just uh, actually been been uh, almost like a teaser. We're, we're not uh, used to this at this time of year, so <laughs> it's been pretty good. Well, and as uh, Thomas, our guest with us today, can verify, North Carolina is the home of bipolar weather uh, where it can be <laughs> hot and warm one day and cold and snowy the next, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of where we are. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, welcome uh, Thomas McCutty in, in with this. He's got the uh, topic of the day, uh, Diagnostic Discipleship. Hey guys, glad to be here. So, yeah, good to have you. So I want to introduce Thomas. Thomas is the director of the Norman Geisler Institute, uh, and so he's a professor of apologetics at Carolina College of Biblical Studies, and recently uh, completed his Doctor of Ministry from Southern Evangelical Seminary, and uh, so uh, man, he's got a he's got a resume a mile long. Hope I covered the essentials there for you, Thomas. Oh, that's 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 basically it. That's that's what's keeping me busy right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also you also have a work that you're doing in Nepal. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the Norm Geisler Institute has its hands in a variety of, of ministries, helping the helping lay people, helping the church, and we're also helping schools across the world. So uh, this year, actually, I was in Nepal when the COVID restrictions first came down. I was I got out of Nepal about three hours before the entire country shut down and they grounded all the planes. So um, I was I barely barely got out. But I went over there, and uh, there's a Bible college over there that we're working with, and we're actually providing, we kind of put the curriculum together, we're providing the instructors, and this is the only Bible college in the country of Nepal offering a Master's of, Divin- a Master's of Divinity in Apologetics. And part of what we're trying to do with countries around the world with these colleges that want a program, but they don't have anybody locally, like in the case of Nepal, their vision is to raise up their own first generation of theologian apologists and so that's how we're partnering with them right now to help raise that generation so that the nepali can begin training the nepali and uh so we we actually just completed the first semester of courses we teach everything online and uh this is how the the institute the norm geyser institute operates anyway so when all the covid restrictions happened they were actually one of the few colleges in the country of nepal that was still operating because they were already capable of going online. So um, God's just been blessing it. We've got connections with Mexico. We've got some in, in Asia as well. And this, this is what we're just trying to do is just trying to help train pastors, train lay leaders to share the faith, defend the faith, and multiply the faith. Wow. And, and Thomas, did you, so you work with Norm Geisler Institute. Did you get a chance to, to uh, meet the late, great Dr. Norman Geisler? Actually, it was Norm who brought me to North Carolina to begin with. I was, uh, when I accepted the call to ministry, I was looking, and I was, uh, my undergrad is in mathematics, so I have a, a math degree, and uh, when God called me to ministry, I didn't know what I was doing, and, and most of the people I was around were Muslims, atheists, and Hindus, 
And I, that was when I stumbled upon apologetics and knew that I needed it. And this was early 2000s. And in that day, I called up every major seminary I could because you pretty much had to call them. And uh, no one offered any significant training in apologetics. They usually offer a class or two. And I stumbled across one of Norm's books, and that's when I called up to Southern Evangelical Seminary. And uh, back in that day, if you if you showed interest in the seminary, Norm would take you out for lunch. And so I actually drove Super Bowl Sunday, two thousand and three. I remember specifically because I started that year. Drove all the way to North Carolina just to actually have lunch with Dr. Geisler. Wow! <laughs> I was like, hey, you know, it's like you know, it's like I, I tell people, it's like if Billy Graham says he wants to do lunch, you don't say no. Yeah, that's exactly so, right. You find, well, there's so a will, I, there's a way. <laughs> yeah, so so I went with no real intentions because I was going to go to a. I'd already put my application in at a different seminary and just hoping for the best. And once I set foot on on campus at SES, I knew that's. And, and it, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to play into that, because that's really what Norm did. There was this integrative approach, and so I did my entire master's uh, with Norm as one of my major professors, and I uh, even got to take him several times for my doctorate before he finally retired. So um, I do like to say that I am Geislerian trained, yes. <laughs> well, I also know who I'm going to uh, take my son to whenever he studies mathematics in uh, high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it sounds like you got another John Lennox in the making, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hey, I love Lennox for that reason. So. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yep, good stuff. So let's uh, let's go ahead and jump in on the questions here. I'm going to start off here. Um, so, Thomas, how did you first come to know the Lord as as Savior? And so, long story, not so long. Um, Really, I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't go to Sunday school. I didn't go and was, wasn't was a part of church camp, youth group, any of that. Um, I did. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was inner city. So uh, back before they had magnet and charter schools, my parents basically put me in a small private school, uh, really just kind of for, for practical reasons. And so that was where I got my Bible. And so once a week, I, I remember her name was Miss Debbie. She came, I think, all the way through my elementary years and, and presented with the flannel graph and sang the songs. And I always knew and I always believed that the Bible stories were real. But it wasn't until, like, sixth grade, I remember it was sixth grade graduation, and I remember being in the park a lot. I remember thinking to myself, this praying thing is a good idea. Now, I've been exposed to it for six years, so I was a little bit of a slow learner. Uh, so <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm like, hey, let, let me try doing this on my own. And what started was I began reading, then I began reading scripture, I began reading a chapter a day, and all through my sixth, uh, that summer of sixth grade year and seventh grade, I worked through the New Testament. So here I'm a middle schooler, and I get to, like, where James says, um, faith without works is dead, and I remember specifically rejecting it. I, I remember saying to myself, I don't want to give up my fun. Now, what fun a middle schooler is having that he wants to reject the Lord, I still don't really remember to this day. But I just, I knew it was going to cost me. I knew that it was going to require this change. And so I, re I rejected it, kept on reading. I read, uh, I decided to start the Old Testament, read Genesis, Exodus, got hung up in Leviticus like most people, ditched that, <laughs> go to Psalms and Proverbs, and that was a little weird. So I go back to the New Testament. I read through the entire New Testament again. Now this is halfway through my eighth grade year. And that's when I realized, first of all, the scripture didn't change. James was still being James. And I knew, my, my thought was, if all of this is real, if all of this is true, like I think it is, then I either have to get all in or get out. There is no middle ground. I mean, I, I read the training manual. I, I It wasn't in there. <laughs> so that night, no, no just as I am, no choir, no nothing. I just, that, that was my prayer. I said, Lord, I'm all in. And uh, I called up my grandmother, who did go to church, and I told her, I was like, I need to go get, I need to be baptized. She's like, what? I said, yeah, like I said, I read the manual, so that's what comes next. <laughs> so my entrance into Christianity is very unorthodox. Um, I went into church wanting to grow. Like, I read about the disciples, I read about what church was, and I went in expecting it. And I didn't get that. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't get that at all. And uh, so, so my conversion is partly why I'm, I'm so interested in, a, in apologetics, because I was one of those who cognitively knew 
but who did not understand as and receive that for myself. Uh, so I know what that's like. Uh, but at the same time, I also know what it's like to literally go into a church asking to be discipled, and there's no one to to do the discipling. And uh, it was actually my grandmother would take me to, back then, the, what was called the Baptist Bookstore, which eventually became Lifeway when such things roamed the earth. Uh, <laughs> I, I went in, and that was when, you know, I just started, this book looks good, you know, this one looks good. You know, I didn't know what else to do. And that was really how I came to know the Lord was was really my Bible and um, a little bit of the things I'd gotten from this, I don't know, how 20-minute, 30-minute Bible story that we would get once a week at the school I was at. Um, but then again, when, when I went to church looking for it, I couldn't find it, and I didn't find it for years. So that's, I think, a, in a big way why my ministry has, has – uh, turned out to be the way it is. You know, Thomas, that w- what you're saying really resonates with me, and I think you're right. I, I would dare say in the vast majority of churches that there isn't a good discipleship program. You know, back, as you said, when Lifeway was actually on the earth, uh, I used to frequent the one in Winston-Salem, you know, very often, and um, that was my home away from home, really. Uh, my wife wished that it wasn't, and so she's probably glad that it isn't on earth anymore, but but they did invent this thing called Logos Bible Software, which she despises now because, <laughs> for the very same reason. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, there were a couple of young men there, and they just so happened to be talking about a theological topic and and uh, theological issue. And I kind of stumbled up and, and started speaking with them about it. And they asked me what I what I was, and I was pastoring of the church at the time. And and I told them I was a pastor, and they were both stunned. And you know what they told me? They said, our pastor won't talk about these things with us. Wow. <laughs> and that floored me. I had the same look on my face hearing that from them that they did, uh, hearing that I was a pastor. But that's kind of a good segue into our, our next question. Uh, what is this thing called diagnostic discipleship? Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you're writing a book on, it, on this even, if I'm not mistaken. We we are we're 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 putting this in in finalized book form i've actually been teaching this at uh the bible college there at carolina college of biblical studies and uh this has actually worked out through my ministry and um again long story not so long uh it was at a, a conference uh four or five years ago at the national conference on, on christian apologetics in Charlotte, and I remember there was a breakout session, and they involved apologetics and discipleship, and that just, I mean, my my antennas went with haywire. I was like, you know, no one talks about this. You know, I've been in, I, I started ministry when I was 17. My my church basically uh, made me acting youth director, so I've, I've been in some form of vocational ministry for over 20 years, and so in this time in the church and dealing with youth, I was interim pastor, senior pastor, all the training, no one, no one links these. And so at this conference, he linked it, and he said, we know what salvation looks like, and we know what a disciple maker, you know, fully functional disciple maker looks like. What are the steps in between? And I was all ears. I was, I was excited. And the man never answered the question. He never gave us what was in between. And I, was, I remember I was sitting on the floor because it was, it was standing room only. I mean, that, this is how interested people were. This is a big room. And um, I remember sitting right there and hammering out those steps to move from salvation to to fully equipped disciple maker, and that w- that's what began the process because the the concept of diagnostic discipleship is when we're trying to do discipleship. When I've done it as a youth pastor, doing it as a pastor, we just pretty much do things mm. and we just kind of give things to people. So the, so the whole concept of it being diagnostic is that if we're going to disciple particularly the 21st century church that we have in front of us, we first have to diagnose where they are and what's going on in order to disciple them properly and to get them where we want them to be. And that's why, as as we kind of, back then I called it my spectrum, that kind of guided me like step by step how to get them there. And uh, I kind of used that as a tool early, you know, in my ministry when I was working this out, that I remember as a pastor, I had a, a, a member come to me and he, he said, Pastor, I just feel stuck. I don't know what to do. 
So I sat down and I began walking through the steps. And I start first with the gospel of salvation, you know, and he's like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, gave my heart all that. Okay. So then I talk about what virtue is and, and about, you know, that sanctification process. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm good there. So then I got into the spiritual discipline, step three. And he's like, oh, pastor, I don't ever pray. I stink. He actually said some things I can't repeat on air, um, <laughs> which was demonstrating the fact that he was, he, he needed maybe a little bit more work in his sanctification than he thought he did. So, so I was able to literally kind of diagnose, this is where he is. If we have a sin problem, we have to diagnose that in some ways with each individual. What, what is it that is their weaknesses? Where are they hung up? What is the barrier that's keeping them to being conformed to like Christ, to being conformed to Christ? Um, so that's really why it's called diagnostic discipleship, and um, and I, I think that's what kind of separates it from again twenty years of me going to conferences, um, sometimes huge. Where I remember one in Chattanooga, a thousand youth pastors gather every year, and I'm just I'm just dying to know how. Do we actually do discipleship? Nothing seems to work. Why is this not? And I, and I realized we need something that comes at the church with precision rather than casting this really broad net and just hoping something works. Mm-hmm. I good. like that. that uh, that's a concept that, that really kind of um, target, targets out individual people and helps them be able to – basically what you're doing is basically – giving them that extra push to, or, or a spot where you can help them uh, educate them or give them the help to help get them pushed over that ledge so they so they move into the next section, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is part of it. Interesting. That's pretty awesome. I just, I enjoy that kind of, that idea uh, behind it. And, and what, what is amazing to me is what you were saying as you're talking um, I could see where the youth pastors, um, you know, get get stuck and in themselves, even in how they teach things, to a point where, like you said, they just throw this broad net over it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how does how is apologetics integrated in in discipleship through this method? So, and this is kind of the other part that makes it diagnostic. Now, again. Being trained under Norman Geisler, being trained at SES, um, and and all the the training I received with it, as a youth pastor, uh, I felt, I kind of had this sense as I went into youth ministry that because of my training with apologetics, I would bring apologetics in and, um, you know, I would really ground the kids. And what happened is, because the statistics, you know, usually 60 to 80% of teens, when they go off to college, they, they walk away. So, of course, I'm coming in with the big guns, and, you know, that's right. not going to happen with me. So I was, I was youth pastor at a church for, for seven years, uh, one particular church. So that, that cycles all the way from sixth grade to senior. So I was able to graduate, quote-unquote, a whole generation that way. And my numbers weren't really any better in terms of kids sticking around. And I was like, I taught them. I went through, I don't have enough faith being atheist. I taught Ooh. them hermeneutics. I, 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 I took with them with me and they, they drink deeply. Why is it that they walked away? So what I recognize is, first of all, just the addition of apologetics is not enough. That uh, apologetics is necessary. So if, I'm, if I may use my mathematical terms, uh, we're taught in mathematical proofs, you need necessary and sufficient conditions. Well, apologetics is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Uh, the same way, the same way, evangelism is necessary for church, but it's not sufficient in and of itself. And um, the discipleship that we do in the church is necessary, but it's not sufficient. the The three of these integrate together, and the, the the way the apologetics integrates is what we would do with apologetics. Typically, is we're trying to reach the skeptics, the atheists, the Muslims. We're trying to reach people outside of Christianity. We're trying to give a defense and show them reasons to believe and, and convert. Well, the same method, and really, and sometimes the same content, needs to be focused in towards the church, not just to inform them as if it's just information transfer, but there's a conformity to Christ they're lacking. And so the apologetics many times can 
through using this this apologetics as discipleship is diagnosing where have they gone wrong in their thinking, where have they gone wrong in their theology, where are their practices, but not just cognitively, because the apologetics really reaches the mind, but when it's integrated, you're able to see the person, not just in terms of what they believe, but also in terms of that behavior and those inner motivations. Uh, And I think for me, as a youth pastor, that was when the light went on, was I realized these kids knew the answer, they just didn't care. Mm. And that's what really radically changed my ministry, where I kind of realized I had compartmentalized these pieces. And so I want to bring these together. So when I'm doing discipleship, I'm the, the apologetics is woven in towards the believer. Even the Nepali, when I was over in Nepal, the pastors I sat down and were, were chatting with, they said to me the very thing, same things I had been saying in the States. They said, we, we need to reach the saved. That for the Nepali wow. church, they're kind of a, they're a first-generation church, that Christianity is, has only been reopened up since like the 50s. It was, it's been closed down to Christianity since like the 1700s. Wow. So, so th- these churches, they recognize everybody. And, I mean, I didn't meet a single person in Nepal that wasn't a convert. Okay, so, so first generation, the second generation Christianity is just now starting to blossom. And oh, they're recognizing in their churches that they've got to reach the actual believers. And there's so much confusion. And there's, there's, it's so, such a different environment. Um, that this whole concept, when I shared with them that what this is, I mean, they were just overjoyed. They were like, this is going to be so helpful, and this is a part of what I've been teaching them uh, through some of our courses. You, you know, Thomas, there, there's something I, I'm, I'm gathering in. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems like a part of this discipleship is the importance of, of community, building relationships. And... Um, one of the things I've noticed this past week is that uh, I was visiting with a with a gentleman who was very in tune with his church. Unfortunately, he was had a condition that was keeping him from attending the church. And I showed him how to connect to his church via Facebook Live, and he had tears rolling down his cheeks because he had been wanting to connect with his church, but he just didn't know how. And so there's a lot of power with that connectivity, um, with, with that whole aspect of community. And I think you're on to something big here. Uh, well, and and in that in that same vein, Brian, is that when I when I develop kind of this this you know these what I eventually call these, these steps of discipleship, I realized that just like you're saying, there there needed to be a way to connect directly with people. What's the process that you kind of go? How do we keep things on our radar? And so the, the more recent addition is there's, there's this um, a simple way to remember what diagnostic discipleship is about is we want to teach people to follow Jesus. So the F-O-L-L-O-W, that um, what, what this whole process is about is, um, as kind of what we were alluding to, is that, you know, you can, you can know whatever, but, you know, if it's not internal, you don't care. So the first step is we, we focus on being before doing. And this is why it is, it's important in terms of community, in terms of person to person. Um, I, I think I can speak from experience as a pastor. Sermons are, are not in and of themselves discipleship. Exactly. That is, that is large group communication. A lot of churches, they just don't understand that. And uh, so I'm, I, as a pastor, never ever was was under the impression that you know as i'm preaching that is what's going to be discipling that somebody might hear something the holy spirit uses that brings them on the conviction but even then i've often said as a pastor that typically you know the conviction that's brought in the pews dies on the steps of the church before they even make it to the car Mm. so you need that community you need that person to person really many times to help become be that that person and we take this this notion from uh, Edmund Chan. He's a Singaporean pastor. So David Geisler is the president of NGIM, and uh, David was discipled specifically by Edmund Chan, who I've often just kind of considered him kind of like the, the Billy Graham of Asia. Okay, this, this guy is is amazing. Ooh. And his book called A Certain Kind. The first time I read it, I rejected it because you know I'm too American. I was like, ah, it's not practical. You know, what do I do? What do I do? And this, this Singaporean pastor impressed upon me through his book 
we are not the right kinds of people. We're not the kind of people who care. We're not the kind of people that we need to be in order to even follow Christ. So when it comes to diagnosing, we focus on being before doing, and it's so anti-American. It's so <laughs> outside of our normal mode of operation. Even teaching at a, at a school, all of our objectives are doing objectives. Right. Uh, and, and we've trained our churches, we've trained our people to think in terms of doing, which is more, you know, the, the Pharisees would applaud. Um, we have to be doers. I'm not saying we don't do anything, but we've we've almost done that to the exclusion. So in diagnosing, we focus on being before doing. We observe their behavior, the O. We have to actually look and know people and know where they are. To You do this with apologetics. Answer the questions they're asking. When I was in Nepal, they told me, they're like, you're answering questions we don't have. You're worried about atheists and Muslims. Nepal is the only predominantly Hindu nation in the world. And they said, how can you speak to us as, as Hindus? And I'm like, hmm, this is not my strong suit. So, you know, like, I was like, well then. So I, I was I was observing, listening. I was like, wow, okay. Um, so I've got to meet them where they are. And the, the L, you learn to listen. And and the listen across it comes from David Geisler and Norm Geisler's book, Conversational Evangelism. So we're linking evangelistic methodology with discipleship. And part of the, the, the goal in doing this is that as people are discipled in this, they're almost automatically being trained in evangelism. You're just having to change the target, and you're changing your focus and your goal. Uh, the second I'll follow is you link being with doing. Then you oh, offer to mentor. You need those relationships, you need that community. And the W is you walk with them, and those are those eight steps that originally set me on this path of diagnostic discipleship i know it just threw a lot out there so i, 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 I was I'm, if you hear clicking i'm taking notes as we go along this is good stuff right here this might be one of the most uh, replayed podcasts that you have as people <laughs> try to get all that because i ran through it let, let, let me recap here f focus on being before doing uh man that's just a big amen right there O, observe their behavior the first L, learn to listen. The second L, link being with doing. The second O, offer to mentor. And then the last W, uh, or the only W, excuse me, walk with them. And that's where the eight steps come in. Wow, great stuff. Whew, man, that's... All right, I, I need to get back focused here. All right, what does... Uh, <laughs> What does apologetics offer, uh, or how does apologetics impact evangelism? And and here is a big question we deal with as apologists in modern times: uh, Is p- apologetics necessary for evangelism? So absolutely, and that's that's a part of why in this this diagnostic process that is is taught and brought out. Because when you're when you're trying to reach and someone who doesn't believe for whatever reason. Uh, you have to, again, figure out what is that barrier between them and Christ. So this is why um, when I learned conversational evangelism from David Geisler, um, immediately I recognized, you know, this is one of the, 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 the best, most um, contextualized method of doing evangelism that I've found, but it was also useful in why I incorporate it in discipleship. And the reason is because with conversational evangelism, that's kind of the flagship of, of NGIM, it's not about a script. It's not about, um, you know, as, as I was trained in faith, I was trained in EE, I was, I was trained in a variety of methods over the years, that the conversational method figures out, it, it asks questions, what does the person actually believe? What is their worldview? When, they're say, when they say that they're a Buddhist, what does that mean to them? What, how do they define that? Where are they actually in their spiritual journey? So when you ask those kinds of questions, the apologetics comes along, and again, you can utilize that uh, where it needs to be used instead of sitting someone down and say, hey, let me explain to you why God exists. For me, before I was a believer, before I put my faith in Christ, that was not my issue. Uh, any apologetics that defended the existence of God I was in favor of. I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't have any problems with that. Uh, my issue was was a faith issue. It was more of a submission problem. And so with apologetics, uh, we're able 
very much like the way uh, Norm's uh, Norm Geisler's system, his 12 points, we use that as kind of an apologetic or as, a, as an evangelism tool. I have a, a student of mine at the, the Bible College, and uh, he, he said that he engaged some Jehovah Witnesses in conversation, and he'd been engaging some others. He actually had a biker ministry, like actually, not like pedal bikers, but like we're talking Hell's Angels kind of uh, bikers. And he said that when he would engage people, when he was doing evangelism, he never left the 12 points. He would always begin right where they are, and that was the information that was always relevant. That's what they had to discuss. Those were the questions. Those were the issues. Those were the hang-ups that people had about Christ because— um, I think it was I think it was Norm who said that um, you know a person will never believe in what they think is false. No one does that. Mm, that's right. So we have to make not just Jesus known. We have to make sure he's understood. Mm. So that way, and, and again, the apologetics clears away the intellectual baggage, the intellectual garbage. One one actual example for me. I, I was preaching a funeral. Uh, when I was uh, pastoring at a country church. So it's a little country church, and we had a guy with, from Middle Eastern descent in the congregation, so he, he kind of stood out. And I was like, okay, this guy's married into the family. And uh, after, when we were having the family meal at church, I was, uh, I remember I was I was specifically trying to get, you know those little miniature cupcakes? That come oh, in yeah. I was trying to dig one of those out. And so I'm knuckle deep in this cupcake, and he comes up to me, gets right in my face, he says, I'm from Pakistan, I've left Islam, but I've not converted to Christianity. Am I going to hell or what? <laughs> so, wow, that's a question my, right there. Yeah. My portion of the sermon, because there's about three or four pastors who were doing the, or the sermon, the, the funeral, because the church member had been there for a long time. So, you know, there was the old family pastor, the favorite pastor, and the one who happened to be pastor, and that was me. So I got to do the gospel presentation. That was my whole purpose. I've been in, in that role many times, Thomas. I've been in that yeah. role many times. Yeah. So my purpose was to give the gospel presentation, which I did, which is why he targeted me. That's why he came not instead of the others. So he asks me this, and so again, conversational training, conversational evangelism training, I asked him, what's your biggest barrier to Christ? What's keeping you from Christianity? And his answer was, he said, I don't understand how God can, you believe that God can copulate with a woman and produce a son. And I said, oh, good, I don't believe that either. He said, what? <laughs> and so again, you know, uh, so I said, all right. Um, and again, I had, I had, I was knuckle deep in that chocolate cupcake. So I had cinder block wall and I knew it would erase. So I used the icing to draw out like the triangle and the concept of the Trinity and show him right there, this is what we really believe. Uh, but again, it's the integration of the apologetics, knowing the kinds of questions to ask. And because of my apologetic training, you know, he's looking at this, he says, I've, I've never heard these things before. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm very well versed with my training. I said, I understand the doctrine of Tavid, which is uh, their doctrine of oneness, that Allah is one and he can't have any partnership whatsoever. And he's like, you know Talid? Like, he got so excited. And I was like, yeah. And I, I read the Quran a couple times. He's like, oh, I've never even read the Quran. You know, like, all the way through. He said, and, and I kid you not, his next thing he said is, uh, can I buy you coffee and you tell me about Jesus? Wow. And now I don't have a lot of those stories, but I, I've milked that one for everything it's worth in my life. Because at that moment, it's just that simple training that, that you know, in the moments... I live in North Carolina next to Fort Bragg, so we got a lot of vets at our college. Uh, it's, a, it's a very military town. They all appreciate that idea that when you're trained, and the reason you get that training is because in the moment, in the heat of things, you fall back on that training. Right. And that's where the apologetics really comes in, is in the heat of the moment in those conversations with a hostile atheist, a skeptic, someone of another religion, and they just throw a curveball at you training kicks in and you're able to give an answer with gentleness and respect and for some people uh my dad was one of those when i answered my dad's questions uh, just a few years ago he told me and my dad's in his 70s no one's ever answered his questions before wow so that's why apologetics is comes alongside evangelism doesn't replace it uh it 
bolsters it. It strengthens it. And I think it does the same thing when it comes to when it comes to discipleship. Amen. Well, speaking of discipleship, uh, Curtis. Yeah. So, so then, so then, with this, you're talking about apologetics in evangelism. So, how does the apologetics impact the discipleship in this method? Look again; it comes alongside bolstering it. So, our discipleship is much more targeted, much more effective, in the sense that as we are engaging. Uh, believers, and so an example. I was uh, I was basically serving kind of as a chaplain for a local community college when I was pastor. The lady paid, played piano for us, had a ministry there at a secular community college, and people would just come in uh, during this this I think it was once a week. And I was she basically said, "Would you do a little Bible study with us?" And my very first time there, I'm like, "Okay, you know, I get to do whatever I want." I had a group of about a dozen people. And I said, all right, well, uh, and this is supposed to be all believers. It's kind of like a Christian club, sort of like a campus crusade for Christ, but community college style. So all believers, I just begin with, you know, well, what does it take to be saved? Let's start with that. We'll see if we're all on the same page. And one lady said that um, what, what it takes to be saved is faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, rose again on the third day, as recorded in the King James 1611 Bible. <laughs> I said, that's a little specific. Muslim be saved? Same lady. Well, yeah, I'm sure a sincere Muslim. Yeah, that they're saved too. And so immediately I realized, hmm, this is not at all going like I anticipated. <laughs> so here I am with these believers who I'm like, they were, as I started asking these questions, I realized there was a lot of confusion, a lot of of muddled thinking. And even as a pastor, uh, I learned, I've, because of my training at SES and under uh, Dr. Thomas Howe, he was on my ordination council, and he made sure you had to know what the gospel was, because if you didn't, he basically, that was the first question when, you, when you, he's on an ordain, ordination council. He asked, what's the gospel? If you can't answer, he says, I vote no, and he walks out. So <laughs> at least those were the stories I heard. I was ready. So I, I knew this ahead of time. So I, I gave my answer. And uh, Thomas Howe and the director of missions at that time in Charlotte, they proceeded to argue for the next 20 minutes because the director of missions for our denomination, he said, that's not the gospel. When I, I was quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5, that Jesus uh, came, he died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried, was uh, rose on the third day, according to the scriptures, and this is how we have salvation, we put our faith in his work that he's done that pays our sin debt. And I was told that's not the gospel by, you know, the guy who's over about a hundred some churches. How was that not the How was that not the gospel? I don't know, but all I know is those guys argued for twenty minutes, and that was twenty minutes of my hour I was supposed to be in there. So I was like, "You guys just keep going." Wow. So, <laughs> so eventually, my pastor called time. So all of this to say that here I am, a pastor now, years later, and every church member. Every single church member, when I go into their home and I'm learning about their family and who's related to who and asking about all the pictures on the wall, I will always get around to, you know, well, let's let's talk about your, you know, where you are with Jesus, your spiritual walk, and this is good deep south here, so, you know, just where are you with Jesus is, is perfectly well understood. And, oh, I'm good, Pastor, you know, and they would, they would tell me, Mom and Daddy were Sunday school superintendents, whatever, and I would say, okay, well, what is the gospel that you believe in? Can you tell me in a few sentences what that gospel is? In three and a half years as pastor of a church of about 150 people, not one adult in the entire three and a half years could give me a direct answer. Wow. I never got it. I would get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I was like, those are gospels. <laughs> um, I want to know what the gospel is. Uh, they would say the whole Bible. Um, and there were even times I was kicked out of living rooms. So I was told to get out of the house. So, Are you serious? Uh, for asking that question. Yes, sir. So, Hold on just a second. They kicked you out of the living room for asking what the gospel was. Oh, uh, yeah, because I, I dared question their faith, which was kind of how they viewed it. Um, which, uh, that long story, that, that, that's a whole other long story to it. When um, I, I've 
if if I for God ever calls me out of NGIM, I'm gonna start a, a ministry for for pastors, black and blue pastors. Oh, look. Um, <laughs> but uh, in going through this, what it really opened my eyes because this cultural Christianity. So so Christianity in America in the 21st century. Uh, here I am in the, the 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 Bible Belt. I'm in deep south in North Carolina territory. You know this is you know kind of God's country where. You know, there's just, there's churches everywhere. And what I quickly learned is people didn't understand the basics of the faith, like at, at all, usually. Uh, it was very, very, just, just they had grown up just learning from their parents culturally. And also, in particular, this area I was at, the reason there were so many churches is because there were so many church splits yeah, that right. even the, the city close to where I, I ministered had a standing ordinance that no new churches could be built in the south of the city limits because the churches were splitting so much it was taking up all the real estate. So, <laughs> true story. That's sad. True story. That's sad. So, so, here I am looking at this. Now, what we can do is we can just kind of like turn our nose up and just like, oh, you know, yeah, just, just stupid backwater Christians. My heart breaks because these, these people... They, they say they love Jesus, but they're so confused. Yes, right. And and almost, to use my philosophical training, it's it's in some ways like Plato's cave, mm-hmm. that here I am trying to bring like the true light of Christ, where they may have been only seeing shadows of it their entire lives. And for many of them, it was it was too bright. It was too, um, too confusing. And some of my students at the Bible College have shared with me before that it's, it's, it, there's a sense of shame to all of a sudden realize you've been wrong your whole life. And I think it's one thing when we have someone in a different religion who figures out their religion is wrong. I think there's enough anger towards their religion that it's, it's I think, in some sense, easier to convert to Christianity than to be inside of Christianity and then figure out you're wrong. What do you turn to? What do you do at that point? So the apologetics comes along to, to offer and to get people thinking about their faith, which um, I don't remember who wrote the book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, but the, the punchline of the book is that there is no evangelical mind. <laughs> we have not thought about our faith. We, we have not engaged these things, and this is not just one church. I've ministered to churches from from Memphis to, to Fayetteville, basically to Mississippi, all the way to I-95. You know, two major arteries in the United States. So across those churches, I've seen this over and over and over. And I think this is what has really pushed my ministry in this direction is because I want to help churches. I want to help those pastors who are sitting there so frustrated and like, why is nothing working? and give them the kind of tools that they can begin doing the surgery that's needed instead of looking for the over-the-counter pill that comes in the next curriculum. Oh, that's a great point. Because something's got to give, I mean, because you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing, and it seems like instead of the church getting better, the church is getting worse. Because I think we're we're uh, we're growing into this more into this cultural form of Christianity rather than authentic Christianity. And I, I hope that diagnostic discipleship is uh, one of the catalysts that can bring a change in the in the direction, the trajectory uh, that we're on. Um, speaking of which, uh, speaking of the diagnostic discipleship, would you say that this is easy for the layperson to adapt this method? Uh, in their church or discipleship program? I would maintain it, it is um, for this reason. One of the things I knew as a, as a pastor and a youth pastor who worked with often very constrained budgets, uh, you, you and I mentioned, you, you talked about earlier Logos. I love mm-hmm. Logos. But no one is, is fooled by Logos's price tag. Oh, absolutely. Like we no we just know that. Like, I, 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 unfortunately, Logos tells you how much you spent over your lifetime. I looked at it, I was like, yeah, that's more than my car's worth. I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness. So I'm afraid you know, I, <laughs> yeah, th- there is that feature. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's one of those, like, we're just going to tuck that away and not look at that. <laughs> so, so I understand churches, they don't have resources. They don't have sometimes equipment. They can't go out and, and buy the training. And and the problem is a lot of churches are going out getting these types of curriculums, these trainings, but they don't have people who are equipped to implement them or to use them or follow up. 
So the concept and the way we're composing this is it doesn't require those kinds of things. It doesn't require this set of curriculum. It doesn't require these expenses that go with it. That, is, that has been a huge part of my heart and ministry because when I go to these places like Nepal, I've ministered in South Africa, the Philippines. Uh, I've worked in China a couple times. They, they don't have money for these kinds of things. And like in the case of Nepal, they don't even have Amazon. So, you know, you can't just ship them things. You can't just get them stuff. So they need a method that can work person to person, that grassroots. And so the way diagnostic discipleship, when you, when you operate according to these principles and you have these key, um, like I said, these steps that you follow that you can know that a person has achieved this or that they're growing in that area and that, you know, all these things are in place. What you're creating are people who are fully equipped. Now, they're not completely equipped as if we were perfectly complete in Christ, um, but they're not deficient in their training. Kind of like when, when again, using the soldier illustration, when the soldiers go through boot camp, you know, do they, you know, are they, are they completely equipped as seasoned soldiers? Absolutely not. Do they know enough that they're not going to shoot themselves in the foot and they can get the job done? They do. And then they get on the field and they grow even further. Mm-hmm. So diagnostic discipleship is in that sense where we can create someone who's, who is fully equipped as a disciple maker. And what we end up doing is we're making disciple makers. And it's not, again, it's not dependent or anchored to any particular curriculum or, or any, even necessarily methods. It's operating by principles. So it, it adapts to whatever the church life is like, whatever is going on, it can be utilized in that. And so that way, if even if you're going to Sunday school, like the with the eight steps, you can tell which steps are being done and which steps are being left out, which is what's causing that problem in discipleship to begin with. And so it can pass almost just person to person, and uh, it be, it's basically I see it in a model very similar to what was going on in the early church. That's how they were doing it. People were transferring their lives to other people. That, that's why in the, the follow method we talk about what it means to be a mentor. That is a cheap word in our culture. That word has a significant depth to it in this material, what it really means to do that and to pass that life on and to really do what Second Timothy 2, 2, where Paul tells Timothy, he's like, what you've heard from me, pass on to faithful men, those who are a certain kind, to use Edmund Chan's language, those who, have, who are being, who, who be what they're supposed to be, you pass that on to them who will teach others also. So so in terms of a local church, you don't have to know the depths of theology, but there's kind of a kind of a basic minimum. You know, there, there's some key things that need to be learned, some key steps that need to be taken that every single believer, and this is a part of the philosophy of this, every single believer has the potential to be a maker of disciple makers. And that's what this is designed to ignite, is that process. Amen. So, and then so, you, so by doing that, it, it's, it just seems to me like what you're, what you're kind of able to target is those spots where people need to be strengthened without taking away the stuff they already know or what, what, they've, already, what they've already basically established. Right. Yeah. Good. So what words... Uh, of encouragement could you give to the pastors, the churches, and the layperson in this turbulent time that we're facing? Uh, I think I think the words I've often given to pastors, um, and, and like I said, I shared a very brief single story of some of the unique experience I've had as a pastor. Um, I, I think what I remind people is that Jesus calls us to be faithful. That looks like a lot of different things in a lot of different scenarios. Uh, you know, the, with the parable of the talents, you know, they were given different amounts. They were they were held accountable to what they were given. And I think when it comes to doing church in the 21st century in the midst of this this uh, pandemic and, and COVID and 
again, because I, I through the Institute, I interact with people all, all over the world. So we have one lady who's in Tasmania and she talks about her island, you know, being shut down, like no one can get on and off. So, you know, there, there are worse situations. <laughs> so um, in, yeah. in, in the midst of these times, uh, the things we're going through, and, and uh, actually just a couple of weeks ago, we went back to Tennessee, a, um, a youth pastor friend of mine, he actually officiated my, our wedding, my and my wife's wedding, um, he passed away from complications from COVID. Oh, and so, so the same thing with him, because, you know, when he passed, it was a, it was a celebration of life. The man was faithful. He was a career youth pastor. He had been 62 this month. He'd been a youth pastor his entire ministry career, um, lived as a youth pastor, died as a youth pastor, 62 years old. And a lot of people, when they look at 62-year-old youth pastors, you know, that, that's, that's a very strange creature. Because uh, usually, you know, you're expected to age out. Well, the man didn't. He he remained a youth pastor. Many looked down on him, and I've and I knew the man really, really well. And the man was faithful, and he was faithful according to the ministry God gave him. He was faithful towards that calling, no matter what. And and that's really the encouragement I give every lay person, every pastor, whatever it is that God's called you to, whatever that looks like. You be faithful to it. If if people are rejecting, they're rejecting Christ. You do the you you do your best, and that's the faithfulness. And whether it's an apologetic ministry, whether again it's leading a church as a pastor, and I've I've had churches where um, I've served. I can go back there this Sunday, and even the the person who replaced me welcomes me in. We have a great time. I have other places. It's not like that. So. In those, even in those places where where there, there's still some healing that needs to happen, my goal during that time was to be faithful. And and when that time came to end and I walked away, that was a question I asked my wife. Could, you know, your spouse is going to be the most honest with you. They're not going to cherry. They're not going to you know sugarcoat anything. Absolutely. Um, and I and I asked. That was my question. I said, "Was I faithful?" That's what I wanted to know. And her answer is unequivocally yes you were faithful and the details you know she started going to that i was like what really matters was i faithful and as long as that's in place then whenever you walk from a ministry you walk with your your head held high rather than in shame not in pride because no matter the results whether by the world standard they're good or even by christianity standard where they were good or bad you walk knowing that you were faithful and that's why i remind people because things have changed for pastors um the, i was i was interim pastor uh, towards the end of last year about, about a year ago this time I, I rolled out our new pastor who's it's his first pastorate he's like yeah i got this thing figured out then COVID hit and he's like i'm a year one i'm still a rookie and i gotta deal with this and he's like what in the world and i'm like i keep telling him faithfulness we have to remain faithful what God has given us, we do that, that's what matters. Amen. And and God takes that and uses that as he will, how he will, in ways that we could never plan in our just our inability to foresee the future. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well very good. Those those are really good uh helpful tips and, and uh we're looking forward to I know we are uh, as Bellator Christie, looking forward to possibly seeing this book coming out soon. Don't want to put any pressure on you, but <laughs> absolutely. I, like I said, I'm, I'm hoping 2021. I'm, I'm hoping that's the goal. Uh, we're with NGIM. We're, we're actually in the summer. Uh, we've got a documentary on Norm's life that's coming out. So that's kind of the big project at the moment. Um, so, so my goal would be late 2021, but. Uh, but again, we've we've got that that documentary that we're going to be using actually to help churches. It's not just about hey, look at Norm. It's here's what he did, and here's how you can do it too. So again, we're gonna that's that's the big thing on our plate at the moment. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. That's great. Well, folks, that was Dr. Thomas McCuddy. That was a good interview, good time, and we're looking forward to spending another time. When we want to welcome you again. Uh, onto the podcast again just to just to visit and tell us how the project with the the, the documentary with norm's going that'd be great 
Yeah, Absolutely. No, open door anytime, brother. Open door yeah. anytime. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com the opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates the Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under creative commons copyright all rights reserved the opening theme is the song crucified written by John and Michaela Limanis performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Meteor showers, Lunar X, and a conjunction that hasn't happened since the 1600s? There's a lot coming up in the December 2020 Astronomical Update, where we encourage you to keep looking up to the beauty of God's creation as you observe the stars and celestial objects in the night sky. But coming up this Friday, December 4th, the Moon and Beehive come together. The waning gibbous moon rises early in the eastern sky in the late evening and will be positioned only two finger widths to the left of a large open star cluster known as the Beehive, otherwise Messier 44 in the Cancer region. The cluster, which contains at least a thousand stars, extends for two full moon's diameters across the sky. So you can see that this Friday, December 4th. Coming up on December 7th, Monday, uh, high in the southern pre-dawn sky, you can see the moon near the asteroid Vesta. Uh, the waning gibbous moon will be positioned a palm's width to the left, or the, excuse me, upper right of the magnitude 7.55 main belt. So you want to find that out or discover that or look for that on December 7th. Coming up December 8th, we have our last quarter moon when it reaches its last quarter phase. Uh, on uh, 7.37 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on December 8th. Saturday, December 12th, the old moon is near Venus. This is during the pre-dawn sky, so the southeastern pre-dawn sky on Saturday, December 12th. The delicate sliver of the old crescent moon will be positioned several finger widths to the upper right of the bright morning star known as Venus. Coming up December 14th, you can see the Geminids uh, meteor shower, which peaks from midnight to dawn. So be sure to get out there uh, between midnight and dawn to see what it will be a spectacular meteor display. It's coming up Monday, December 14th, the new moon will happen and a sol- total solar eclipse will take place. Uh, at its new phase, the moon is traveling between Earth and the sun since sunlight can only reach the far side of the moon and the moon is in the same region of the sky as the sun. The moon becomes completely hidden from view for about a day. This new moon will also produce a total solar eclipse. However, it's only visible inside a narrow track from the South Pacific Ocean across South America and ending around sunset sunset at the South Atlantic Ocean. So for those of us in the United States, uh, we probably won't be able to see it. Uh, The moon shadow will first contact Earth in the Pacific Ocean uh, about 2425 miles southwest, excuse me, southeast of Hawaii. And so that's coming up uh, December 14th. Total solar eclipse if you are in the South Atlantic Ocean 
uh, and the South Pacific Ocean. Tuesday, December 15th, Jupiter and Saturn pass Messier 75. Uh, and so uh, there's a uh, something happening special on December 21st. We'll mention in just a few moments. It's a big-time event that you will not want to miss. Wednesday, December 16th, the young moon below Jupiter and Saturn after sunset. They all come together. December 17th, the crescent moon is beside Jupiter and Saturn in the early evening sky. Then we come to Monday, December 21st. Uh, this is the northern winter solstice, the first day of winter. And this officially happens Monday, December 21st at 10.02 uh, General Mountain Time or uh, 5.02 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. But also, Monday, December 21st, something happens that you will definitely want to check out. This is the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. This happens after sunset. In the southwestern sky after sunset on Monday, December 21st, Jupiter's faster orbital motion will bring it to within one degree of slower Saturn, causing the two planets to appear to the unaided eye as a single bright object. The two planets, get this, they have not been this close together since Galileo was using his spyglass in 1623. And they won't meet again so closely until 2080. This is a very rare occasion. Some people have even postulated that this could be the star of Bethlehem. Could it be? Well, maybe, maybe not. But nonetheless, you'll need to start observing them as soon as you can. Uh, find them in a darkened sky because they will set in the west at about 7 p.m. local time. So don't wait until December 21st to view this spectacular conjunction. They're already moving close together now as we speak. So you want to check this out. Monday, December 21st also has the first quarter moon. Also, the Lunar X uh, will uh, feature a uh, feature of on the moon called the Lunar X becomes visible in a strong with strong binoculars and a backyard telescope. Uh, so this, uh, when the rims of the craters Pure Bach, La Cale, and Blancinus, Blancinus, I guess is how you say that, are illuminated from a particular angle of sunlight, they form a small yet very obvious X shape on the moon's surface. It's quite interesting. You'll want to check that out. The X is predicted to become apparent after 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on, month, on Monday, December 21st, peak around 11 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and then continue to about 1 a.m. So you want to go out and check that out. So December 22nd, the Ursid meteor shower peaks during the pre-dawn hours. December 23rd, the Gibbous moon meets Mars in the evening sky. Moon also occults near the new Poseidon uh, uh, the, uh, star cluster. And so also on Christmas Day, the Sirius Iridium's golden handle is in view all night. And uh, this golden handle is produced when slanted sunlight brightly illuminates the eastern side of the prominent curved Montes Jura mountain range on the moon that surrounds the bay at the top and left. So interesting things going on with the moon this month. And speaking of the moon, coming up December 30th, we have a full oak moon. It's called a full oak moon in December. That'll be coming up. And uh, December 31st, Algol, also designated Beta Per se, is among the most accessible variable stars for sky watchers, and this becomes noticeably uh, bright at, uh, oh, excuse me, noticeably dim for about 10 hours once every two days, 20 hours and 49 minutes. So that'll happen. Mercury will be, except for a few minutes, it will only be observable for just a short time. Uh, for a few days in early December, Venus will still be seen in the uh, pre-morning sky. Mars uh, will con will continue to be observed. And as we mentioned, Jupiter and Saturn have the great conjunction on December 21st. Uh, Uranus, uh, the blue-green Uranus, will, will be visible all day long while it travels slowly westward. And then Neptune will be available for observing in the evening sky during December as well. So quite a lot of things going on in the month of December 2020. And so this is Brian Chilton for the Bellator Christie Podcast, giving you your monthly astronomical update. 
And once again, go out and enjoy the beauty of God's creation. And as a reminder, keep looking up. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question.